This is Chapter 58 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. K.J. Howe stops by this week to talk about her nail-biting new thriller and to give us a preview of this summer's Thriller Fest. We'll hear from international bestseller Jeffrey Deaver, who tells us it's his job to terrify readers. And last but definitely not least, we hear about the books vying for this year's One Book, One New York title. sure you don't think about the risk of kidnapping when you plan your vacations. I know I don't. But I tell you what, thriller writer K.J. Howe is making me rethink that. She recently visited our studios to talk about her latest book, Skyjack. Thea Paris is an elite kidnap negotiator, and um, she's one of 25 people in the world who goes to the globe's hot spots to bring hostages back home. Uh, she became a, a kidnap negotiator because her brother was kidnapped in front of her when he was 12 and she was 8. And so as a result, he was a um, a child soldier, and that's very important to her. And um, so she's escorting two child soldiers from Nairobi to London when the plane they're on is hijacked, and then the fun and adventure begins from there. What kind of research did you do for this book? Did you get to travel to all the cool places you talk about? Yes, I I really am a bit of a research junkie and an avid traveler. So I definitely made the effort to go to almost every place that's in the book. Um, The Freedom Broker had Santorini, Athens, and Zimbabwe in it. And of course, Skyjack had Libya, you know, Italy, Austria, um, you know, Budapest and, and Istanbul. And I've been to all those places. I feel like you can bring back more of an essence that way. You know, because you've had this, the experience of the sights, sounds, and, you know, taste and feel of a place. And I'm really hoping if people haven't been there, they'll be tempted to go. And if they have been there, that'll bring back fond memories. It's also a good reason to get on a plane and travel. Although when you're writing about, you know, the, the book opens on an airplane flight. <laughs> With do just you a find, touch do you of like turbulence? To fly? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm actually an avid, uh, um, you know, flyer. Um, I, so I grew up, you know, living around the world because my father worked in telecommunications. And at one point, my father was in charge of the telecommunications in Africa, in Uganda, Kenya, and Tanzania. And the roads in Africa are atrocious. So my father got his private pilot's license, and he's a bit of an adrenaline junkie. That's definitely where I got it from. And um, he used to fly from place to place instead of road because the roads are treacherous, full of potholes and very dangerous, you know, and <clears throat> wild animals on them too as well. And uh, anyway, so he become he became an aerobatics pilot. And some of the things he would do, and I've ridden with him when he did this, you'd throw a roll of toilet paper out the window. And the competition is between the different aircraft. Who can cut it the most times? Which means basically you're, you know, swerving in and out. Um, so this is the kind of <laughs> fun I had. So I'm very comfortable in planes. I can gather that. Like, And speaking of everything that you've done, I took a couple of notes on your bio Racing camels in Jordan, swimming with great white sharks, working with elephants in Botswana. How much of you is actually in Thea Paris? Well, I would say, you know, I think any author, you know, has a lot of themselves in a character. Just it's just because that's who you are, what you think and feel and what you've experienced in life. And I definitely would say, you know, I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie, but Thea is much braver than I am. <laughs> Let's face it. <laughs> what made you want to write about the world of kidnap and ransom? Well, because of my upbringing, I was always a foreigner in a foreign land in a way. And and there's always this kind of overarching shadow or worry, you know, like, are you going to be taken? You know, be careful. I think my situational awareness as a child was very high. And I found kidnapping fascinating because a lot of crime fiction is written about murder. And it's also interesting. But it's very final. 
Whereas I think kidnapping is kind of you're hovering in this purgatory. The people are alive, but they're not living really, right? They're, you know, kind of boxed in or caged in a place and have no, you know, choices, no freedoms, you know. So I thought that was a very interesting area to explore. And when I learned that there was only like 25 to 30 people in the world who actually do this in real life, I was just fascinated by it. And I have, for the fast, last five years, immersed myself in the world of kidnap and ransom. And I'm very honored to call a lot of these people my friends now. It's it's an interesting point you bring up about murder being final because uh, I guess also it adds to the reader's experience because they, in a way, reading about a kidnapping can kind of go through. I wonder how I would react in that situation. Exactly. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and quite often I love to ask people, you know, if you're going to be kidnapped, what would be the one item that you might want to bring with you? And uh, I don't know if you have a, any thoughts, but uh, the answers really are intriguing to me. Yeah, I don't know. That's... We get everything from, you know, nine millimeter to uh, <laughs> to p- photos of, of loved ones. And yeah. that's critical because hope is really what keeps us alive when we're being in captivity. You know, it's it's really about discipline, about structure, about keeping your mind active. Uh, there's excru- excruciatingly boring times because you just endless days filled with nothing. And so what the experts recommend is to do something that's very creative and stimulating for your brain, like build your dream house in your mind, like room by room, item by item. That's that's incredible. You you don't even really think about it in that way. And I guess I, I'm, I'm going to turn the tables a little bit on you. Do you have an answer to that question? <laughs> yeah, I think that um, hope is what, what really keeps you alive. So I definitely think that I would... Um, I think I would take paper and pen, you know, um, because of me of being an author, I, I would love to record the experience to sort of explore my emotions from, you know, I find that when you hand write things, um, it, it's a big connection with your heart. And I'd love to be able to record exactly how I felt and feel like so that I could, um, you know, keep keep myself motivated to get back and write down all of the different things I miss and what I want to do, things like that. You know? Yeah, that that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I guess as a, you know, as a as someone who reads and some as a journalist too, I always have pen and paper. Mm. So I guess I, I can understand where you're coming from with that. So I'm going to guess this, we haven't seen the last of Thea Paris. <laughs> I certainly hope not. <laughs> as long as readers are willing to go with me, uh, definitely. Uh, I'm working on the third book right now. And um, it's about, I, I've had the opportunity to meet another gentleman who is a hostile environment consultant. Now, isn't that a cool uh, title? Yes. So what this gentleman does is he travels the globe guarding journalists in war zones and sometimes VIPs, you know. And it's a fascinating job because it's so critical. You know, you want to make sure that the, the journalists get the best story possible, but you have to make sure they're safe. And it's a really fine line to walk. So I've gotten to know him quite well. And the next book is going to be Thea's ex-boyfriend is a hostile environment consultant. And he's guarding journalists in Jordan. And they're taken. And the story kind of kicks off from there. So it should be very interesting, you know, to see where it leads. And, and then I want to explore the negotiation side of the business, which I find fascinating. Um, I've gotten to know Gary Nesner, who's the former FBI chief of hostage negotiation. Gary also worked in the private industry like Thea does um, in hostage negotiation as well. And we had long talks, you know, already about the possibilities of, for example, if there's groups, different groups of, of uh, hostages held by the same kidnappers, they could get different responses and different interests from the kidnap negotiators on each side. And how do you balance all of these components and these desires, right? Certain countries, for example, pay really quickly and very well. 
other countries like the U.S. refuse to negotiate with terrorists, you know, or kidnappers. So this is going to be a really rife with conflict story. Is kidnapping nowadays, is it a more global phenomena rather than like a U.S. soil type of thing? Yeah, 100%. Um, on my website, kjhow.com, there's a map. And just before you take your next vacation, you might want to check out some of the hot spots there <laughs> <laughs> to make sure you don't go. Um, but they're surprising sometimes. The U.S. has a very low kidnapping rate because of the fact that prosecution is very high, 95% chance of getting caught, and the penalties are very stiff. Compare that with Mexico, for example, where you have a 95% chance of probably getting away with a kidnapping. It's quite possible the police and, you know, federales are involved in it even. And, um, you know, the, really the penalties aren't even that stiff. So I think, you know, it's a very different way of life. And I think what's happening across the globe is that kidnapping is exploding because, one, terrorists are using it as a fundraising mechanism. It's very effective. They make millions. And then two, displaced military and police in developing countries are really, um, they have no food on the table for their families because they're not getting paid. So they're turning to um, kidnapping as a way of making a living. It's really a fascinating thing that you hear about in news headlines, but you don't really think about what the story behind it and all the people that are involved with it. Mm -hmm. So thank you for like opening the door to that world. And if I can switch gears on you now, sure. um, let's also talk about Thriller Fest, which you're the executive director of. And I know you're probably waist deep in the planning stages for what's happening this year. Can you like give us a little hint of what we might be able to expect? Sure. So for those who have never heard of Thriller Fest, it's a week-long extravaganza at the Grand Hyatt in New York City, um, July 10 to 14 this year. And um, we're very honored to be headlining George R. R. Martin of Game of Thrones as our Thriller Master, which is our lifetime achievement. We also have many other top thriller authors coming from all over the world. Uh, we'll, we'll be spotlighting James Rollins, um, I love his books, um, as our Silver Bullet. And we'll also be having Megan Abbott as our you know, um, spotlight guest. And there are many, like, if you're an aspiring author at all, we have craft sessions that are incredible. You can learn about writing. We have pitch sessions where you can, uh, aspiring authors can pitch to over 60 agents. It's a really fun week, very friendly, um, professional group of people. And I uh, highly recommend you come join us. And where can people go if uh, they're interested? Sure. Thrillerfest.com is nice and easy. And um, if you have any questions, my um, email is on the website. So don't hesitate to drop me a line. Always happy to hear from people and try and help you sort things out. And on that note, congrats also. I saw that you got a nomination for Best First Novel. Yeah, I was really honored by that. It means a lot, especially, you know, given my connection with ITW. So thank you kindly. KJ Howe, author of Skyjack, thanks for joining us. It's a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. The Diamond Trade and New York City's Diamond District take center stage in Jeffrey Deaver's new book, The Cutting Edge. It also marks a homecoming for his beloved protagonist, Lincoln Rhyme. He tells our Pat Farnack all about it. I devoured The Cutting Edge in uh, like a oh, weekend. Now, readers uh, love your character, Lincoln Rhyme and Amelia Sachs, and this time they're back. And they're uh, tracking an especially vicious killer who strikes engaged couples. What got you thinking about couples and, and diamonds this time? 
Yeah, I'm sick and twisted. I guess that's what got me <laughs> thinking about it. I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, if you if you know uh, my books, I, I love. I guess what I call it a hook, some mm-hmm. interesting topic that might be, uh, for instance, um, in uh, the Steel Kiss, a recent book of mine that would be smart products, the dangers of like Wi-Fi enabled products. And I thought, you know, I've never done anything in the diamond uh, industry. It's it's fascinating. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll explore that. And, of course, you know, we've seen Blood, Diamonds, that topic. There was actually yeah. a very good movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio a few mm-hmm. years ago. But that's kind of the political side. That's a little, you know, it's a horrific story, but it's been done. And I thought, what if somebody were obsessed uh, for various reasons that are ultimately revealed with with the, the, the fact that diamonds represent a bonding of, of human beings, that they represent love, and he's jealous of that. And mm-hmm. anyone who goes to purchase a, a diamond ring or, for instance, is at a wedding planner or, you know, checking out a, a church for potential uh, nuptials, uh, tracks that person. And uh, I thought, yes, that's, that's, I think that that's very scary. My job is to, you know, frankly, terrify <laughs> readers. And, and so that's where the whole diamond concept came up. You are a very twisted individual, I have to say. <laughs> oh, thank you. I like to, I'd like to put those on my book book jackets instead of. Please do. You know, we just got a very good review from the New York Times, and there'll be a, you know, I'll put that on the blurb of my book. But if, if Pat says I'm I'm sick, then I, I'd like that on the cover. <laughs> you know your your book. This book was so well. A, a lot of them are, but your books are so timely. And dealing with the immigrant experience was was so perfect in the times we live in. And your your character Vimal pursuing love and the American dream while a madman is pursuing him. Oh, I, I love to turn up the uh, the heat on uh, all my characters. I'm a very plot-driven author. Mm. Um, I don't know if you've heard the expression plotters and pantsers. Uh, plotter is someone who outlines the books, which I do for, for many months before I write. A pantser, as in seat of the pants, yeah. is someone who just kind of sits down and let the, lets the characters decide where the story is going to go and neither neither one is better than the other i just am more comfortable with my fast-paced plots Mm. but even then you need characters who are living breathing real people otherwise the best plots in the world don't really mean anything so i uh, in researching the um, the diamond industry in america i learned that uh, south asians um you know indians from india and Mm -hmm. uh, in in mal's case uh from um uh, the northern part of the state, Kashmir, kind of a disputed territory there, are, are really the new uh, diamond, the new face of the diamond world. So I thought, well, let me explore that uh, uh, that uh, race and that culture, and it, it was it was quite interesting to me because I was not familiar with it before. But um, th- these are new, Im- relatively new immigrants to America who have the issues that, of course, new immigrants have. And now in th- in this climate, uh, they are. Um, you know, that's, that's kind of uh, emphasized. The difficulties they're having are emphasized. And then, of course, there's a serial killer after the poor fellow. And, <laughs> uh, and yet all he wants to do is is, um, is cut stones. Yeah. It, that, that's his, he, he, Michelangelo is his, uh, is his god, and he, that's all he wants to do. And yet he's thrown into this terrible uh, pressure cooker. Uh, speaking of that, uh, some of your tidbits that you sprinkle throughout are, are, are so disturbing, such as the terrorist using four passports to enter the U.S., or how bombs can so easily be be planted in your basement. Oh, yeah. 
I um, I, I work um, work with uh, people in law enforcement and national security. Of course, uh, you know, no one has ever told me anything that's classified. But um, the, the the public knowledge about the um, you know really the the brilliance and the nefariousness of the of both terrorists and and professional criminals is is really quite astonishing. They have the um, you know the resources that um, the government really doesn't have because they have relatively unlimited budgets and can uh, uh, can create these uh, you know horrific devices. But um, yeah, everything I describe in the book is um, is uh, is true. But you know you you bring up an interesting point, Pat, and I am very conscious of not giving away too much information. Mm. There was a um, a scene in a book I wrote some years ago that said um, he constructed um, a bomb from X, Y, and Z yeah. in my first draft. And then I realized, oh my gosh, I can't say that because I, adults who read my book are going to be responsible. I, have not, I don't think a terrorist is suddenly going to say, read a Jeffrey Deaver book and say, oh, you know what? I think I'll become a terrorist and I, I'll make a bomb. I'd never thought of that before. But, you know, I do worry about younger people who, um, and my readership, uh, you know, really goes down to kids in, in middle school, which I'm very pleased about because I, I like to encourage uh, young, younger folks to read. But I wouldn't want them kind of on a whim, thinking back to my irresponsible 13-year-old days, <laughs> yeah. to uh, try to uh, whip up something. So, so I changed that to, uh, you know, made a, a device with household items. Yeah. So that was that, that that was not a not a risk. But anyway, in the cutting edge, uh, many of the the terrible things I described <laughs> uh, could actually happen. I like uh, the little, just the little whiff of romance between Lincoln and Amelia. That was that was nice to sort of uh, counter all the violence. It's it, it, it's interesting you mentioned that, Beth, because I when I I do my outlines, I try to make them um, sort of like a symphony, which sounds a little grandiose, but I'll, I'll explain what I mean. Uh, you know, Beethoven didn't write five. Uh, vivace, the real fast-paced movements, one right after another. He he interspersed them with the slower movements so that each one would have more impact. Mm-hmm. Uh, and nor did he write, you know, four real slow movements because the audience would fall asleep. Well, I I structure my books the same way, so that we have the big exciting scene where, for instance, and uh, no, this isn't. Uh, well, I'll, I won't give too much away where someone is almost killed, believe it or not, in an earthquake in, in New York City. Mm-hmm. And following that was a, a much slower scene in which Lincoln and Amelia, um, well, you know, we see the human side together. And um, that, that, I think, it really adds to the whole experience of the book. There are so many movements and so many parts of the orchestra going on throughout uh, the cutting edge. It, it really kept you on the edge of your seat. Um and what's what? Why uh, Lincoln rhyme as a wheelchair? I was going to say wheelchair bound, but that isn't exactly right. He's in a wheelchair. Oh, um, why? Yeah, uh, yeah. For your um, your listeners who may not be familiar, um, he he was originally seen in the Bone Collector. Mm-hmm. Uh, this goes back. <laughs> wow. I'm dating myself now, but about <laughs> twenty years. Yes. And uh, he's a quadriplegic. Uh, forensic detective. He he was head of the New York City uh, Police Department crime scene unit uh, when it was called Investigation Resource Division. It's it's since gone through some change changes, but that's what it was back then. And head of the crime scene unit. 
And he wasn't content just to sit in the office or the laboratory. He would go out into the field, Mm -hmm. and he was injured, uh, very severely injured at a crime scene in an accident and uh, became paralyzed from the neck down. Well, the reason I created him was that, uh, in that way, I wanted a hero who had to outthink the villain rather than outshoot the villain. Mm -hmm. And we certainly have seen wonderful heroes, action heroes, who are, you know, at the end of the book or the end of the movie are being defeated by the villain. And what do they do? You know, they find a hidden gun or they suddenly remember they know how to karate kick somebody. And, <laughs> you know, it's it's okay. I've written scenes like that, but I wanted something that would really excite the audience. So um, in books from, the, I mean, there have been 14 in the series now from The Bone Collector to The Cutting Edge, uh, Lincoln Rhyme has to outthink the villain and he's mm. required to outthink the villain. And I actually believe that makes for a more exciting story. And I like that uh, you've taken him through several books now, and uh, I want to hear what he's up to next. So it works. Well, I found that readers love uh, series characters, and I know I do. I I Mm -hmm. grew up reading uh, James Bond and uh, Travis McGee books. Um, More recently, we think of uh, Kathy Reich's um, uh, Temperance Brennan on Mm -hmm. Bones TV show and, Mm -hmm. and her books, or... Uh, you know, there's so many wonderful authors who create series characters. I, uh, I, I, I like that in my writing or my reading. I like to do it in my writing. You produce? Is it a book a year? What are you working on now? I do a book a year. I have um, uh, in my in my. <laughs> I was going to say youth, but youth is way way past <laughs> my slightly younger days. I would sometimes do uh, two books a year, but I have in the works right now a. Um, uh, another uh, Lincoln Rhyme book, uh, yet another Catherine Dance book, another mm-hmm. series, and uh, immediately I'm working on a, uh, a new uh, a new character altogether, which I think will have to remain secret. Why? Because I'm a suspense writer, and I have oh. to leave people in suspense. <laughs> <laughs> so you're you're not slowing down by any means. Well, I'm I'm very lucky. I I love to write. And I, well, frankly, I have a, a low a, a low boredom tolerance. And when you write fiction, you're never bored. If you have a, a pencil or a pen and a piece of paper or a computer with you, you you can always be engaged. And I, um, uh, so for me, uh, in other words, what I get back from this is that kind of enjoyment. But I also feel very strongly that, that books are the, the most emotionally engaging form of creativity because the readers are partners mm-hmm. with the creator. You know, we don't just look at a painting, and that's wonderful. I like art, I like TV, I like a few video games, but that's kind of passive. A book requires our engagement, and that's the um, um, that's the sort of uh, world I want to contribute to. Well, I'm glad you do. <laughs> keep on, keep it up. Thank you, Pat. There are a few things that can bring together the over 8 million people who call New York City home. But the city is hoping books is one of them. That's one of the ideas behind the One Book, One Year contest now in its second year. I recently got the details from Julie Menon, who serves as the commissioner of the mayor's office of media and entertainment. One Book, One New York is a citywide campaign that we run. It's in its second year where we've shortlisted five terrific books and we encourage New Yorkers to vote among which of the five books they want the city to read. We have over 5,000 copies of these books at the 219 public library branches, and it's a wonderful way for all of New York City to 
get behind these books, uh, which really talk about New York neighborhoods, particular New York issues, issues around immigration. And certainly in these divided political times that we're in, these five books in, in many different ways, each can spark a real civic conversation. And which books were selected for this year's contest? Manhattan Beach by Jennifer Egan, Behold the Dreamers by Mbole Embue, White Tears by Harry Kunzeru, If Beale Street Could Talk by James Baldwin, and then When I Was Puerto Rican by Esmeralda Santiago. How could you possibly have narrowed down what I imagine is a pretty big field? (laughs) (laughs) That is honestly one of the toughest uh, decisions because there are obviously so many meritorious and worthy books to choose from. But we believe these five books in particular uh, feature themes of immigration, of cultural appropriation. Uh, The main characters are all New Yorkers. Um, and many of them are struggling artists, they're recent immigrants, they're themes that are very um, important for New Yorkers. These four of the authors who are still are living authors have been working in New York. Um, one of the books, uh, Beale Street Could Talk by James Baldwin, is now being made into a film by Barry Jenkins from uh, Moonlight, and that's being shot in Harlem right now. And we really believe these books, um, each in their own way, raise important issues. And so we're very excited to have New Yorkers vote on them. The last time we did the one book competition, tens and tens of thousands of New Yorkers voted. The book Americana won that selection. And one of the important things that as a result happened is we really want to support independent bookstores throughout the city. So many of them have closed in recent years. The Bronx has no bookstore right now. And so the more that we can be doing to support bookstores throughout the city, that's incredibly important. And as a result of our program last year, uh, sales of the book that won, Americana, uh, increased by over 400 percent in independent bookstores throughout the city. So it really does have an important impact. You did this for the first time last year. Were you surprised at the reaction and the reception that it got from New Yorkers? We were thrilled by the reception it got from New Yorkers and even beyond New York. We were contacted by so many other cities across the United States and even in other countries that wanted to replicate a one-book program and asked us, how do you do that? But certainly the reaction from New Yorkers was tremendous. The number of people who said to us, I was riding on the subway and I was reading Americana and I looked over and across the aisle, another person was reading Americana. And it really creates that commonality of experience of all New Yorkers reading that same book at the same time and bringing their own personal views to it. Um, The winning book, Americana, last time, we had events all around the city celebrating that book. We had a uh, women's reading group at Rikers for um, uh, female inmates that was really incredibly successful and impactful. We partnered with Columbia College, uh, with Teachers College, to create a curriculum around Americana. And so we're going to be doing similar events this year with the winning book. You touched on it a little bit that uh, this contest helps New Yorkers who maybe come from all different walks of life find common ground. Is that really the goal or is there also like a sense to just get people to get out and read more? 
Well, certainly the literacy component is incredibly important, and that's why we have 5,000 copies of the books at the public libraries throughout the city. But it's also the issue of independent bookstores and how many of them have closed in recent years. Um, And so we really want to be able to support those uh, bookstores as well, and a program like this does that. We're partnering with independent bookstores throughout the city, um, giving them marketing materials around the program, really encouraging people to visit their local store to support their local bookstore. But at the same time, we also partner with the libraries. And that's why, again, um, we have so many copies of these books at all the public library branches throughout the city as well. So where can people place their votes and what's the deadline for doing that? So voting occurs all through the month of April. Uh, People can vote on our website, which is nyc.gov slash one book. And that's one book, O-N-E book. And the the deadline, is that May 3rd? Yes, correct. And you you mentioned a little bit what you did last year uh, with the winning book. Do you have any idea what you'll be doing this year, or do you really wait to see and cater it? Well, we're going to be doing events around the city, uh, certainly with the winning author. Uh, We're also going to be doing reading groups throughout the city. We partner extensively with the public libraries to do events as well. So these are all um, things that we found people responded to incredibly well, and that's um, important. We're also partnering on one book this year with um, New York Magazine and Vulture, and so they have a number of events planned for the winning book as well. Very cool. Is there anything else you want to add or do you think that people should know? Well, the other thing is I would say that in April, on April 19th, um, we're doing a big uh, public event um, that's open and free to the public in the New Schools Auditorium that's focused on having, we're having the four uh, living authors come, and then we're also having the film director, Barry Jenkins, who's directing um, If Beale Street Could Talk. And all of these five individuals, both the four authors and Barry Jenkins, will be there to speak about the various books. And so we think that's a great way for the public to engage, and that will be part of the Pan America World Voices Festival. That sounds like an incredible event. It will be. And so people can go on our, web, our website and register if they're interested in attending. Well, Julie Menon, the commissioner of the Mayor's Office of Media and Entertainment, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Next week, we'll introduce you to an author who has reimagined one of the classic Greek mythological characters you thought you knew. In the meantime, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS 880 Books or email me at lisat at WCBS880.com. That's L-I-S-A-T at WCBS880.com.